If you have your Bibles, be turning to 1 Thessalonians, Paul's first letter to the Thessalonian church. And as you're getting there, I'm going to just kind of remind you of where we've been. I'm not going to go through a long introduction, but it is important to remember that Paul is writing to a church that is very young in the faith, a church that Paul helped start on the second missionary journey as they entered into Macedonia, a church that Paul was forced to leave under persecution, and a church for which Paul is gravely concerned that they do not have what they need to stand through the persecution. He uh, saw them come to faith in Christ. He got them off to a good start, but Paul is concerned. Did they have enough? Is their faith genuine? Will they stand in the day of testing? Well, Paul has received back word and knows that they have. He's overjoyed, and he has spoken of the thanksgiving that he has and has spoken about so many things that we've looked at over the three chapters that start this letter. And then we come to the fourth chapter, and we looked at it last time. And we saw that Paul lays out what the will of God is for believers. We began to see that Paul says, if you understand all these things about God, you must live them out by faith. We spoke about the fact that you cannot divide theology from how we live practically as Christians. If you understand the theology, you must live it out in faith. And if you are living out in faith, it should be based on understanding who God is and what he desires of his people. And so we saw last time that Paul told them that he urged and exhorted them in Jesus Christ that they should abound more and more in what they're doing. They should abound more and more in what they're already doing, what they've already been taught. They should continue to walk as they have walked. Now, my friends, that is a message we said for people today. You don't need more than you have. God has given you what is sufficient to do what you already know, what you've already been taught. It doesn't mean you don't strive to grow. We just sang a song, I asked the Lord that I might grow. We should strive to grow in our faith and our walk with the Lord, but start with what you already have. That's what Paul is telling them. Abound more and more in the direction you're already going and what you're already doing before God. And if you do that, if you live out and continue to walk by faith, that is how you will please God. For outside of faith, it is impossible to please God. He also goes on to say that you know the commandments that we gave you through the Lord Jesus. So even though it was so short a time in Thessalonica, Paul still gave plenty of commands and teachings to this church. They need to live them out. They need to continue in them. And then Paul comes to the text for today. I want you to listen as we read it. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter, because the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we also forewarned you and testified. For God did not call us to uncleanness, but in holiness. Therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man, but God, who has given us also his Holy Spirit. Amen. The word of the Lord. As we begin today to look at this text, we want to quickly look at three points. First of all, God's revealed will. God's revealed will. Second of all, we want to look at your self-control. Paul says if you understand God's revealed will, then it involves your self-control. 
And finally, we need to see Paul's urgent warning to these believers and to us as believers. Beginning first with God's revealed will, we see immediately that it's tied to sanctification. Now, it's interesting because if you begin the text today, it says, for this is the will of God. But the article in the Greek is not present. So it doesn't encompass uh, all of God's will, but it directs us to God's will. What is God's will involve? Well, your sanctification. Your sanctification and growing in holiness is the will of God for you. It's God's plan. His will for you is to grow in your walk with Christ, to be sanctified. And the exact meaning there is the process of being made holy. That is God's will. Now, it's interesting, F.F. Bruce says that the will of God for his people is not wider than their sanctification. He said, so in one sense, it does encompass, in a way, all of God's will for us. God didn't save us just to justify us, but ultimately to glorify us. He called us that we would be holy as he is holy. And his plan, of course, is ultimately to glorify all those who are justified. All who have been justified shall be glorified, and that involves the process of sanctification. And so what is God's will for you as a believer? It is that you would be sanctified. He is interested in your sanctification. All believers must be sanctified. If there is no sanctification going on in your life, then the question would be, do you have the Holy Spirit at work in you? And if there is no presence of the Spirit, then you were not justified, for all who were justified were given the gift of the Holy Spirit at their justification. And so we recognize this important call in the will of God that we are to be sanctified. We spoke last week about uh, in this very letter in chapter 5, Paul tells us to be joyous, to pray without ceasing, and everything to give thanks for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. And we spoke about the fact that those three things are main traits of our sanctification, aren't they? What are Christians except a joyous people? A people who have a joy that cannot be taken by the world, that is not dependent on the things of this world. Aren't believers being sanctified a people who are to be always praying? Recognizing our dependence on God's grace? Recognizing our need of God? Desiring to to be in communion with God? To be speaking with our Heavenly Father? Isn't that also part of our sanctification process? And what about giving thanks? What says that a person is walking closely with Christ than the fact that they can give thanksgiving in all times and seasons, in the good and the bad? Brothers and sisters, if you have seen a believer who, through the darkest of valleys, can give thanksgiving to God, you know the testimony that is to God's glory. My friends, again, you see even in that chapter 5 reference to the will of God in Christ Jesus for you, it's all about our sanctification about the desire of God that we might grow in our faith. As we sang that great hymn a moment ago, it reminds us that it should be our desire to grow in faith. It should be our desire to be sanctified by the power of the Spirit. We ought to be asking the Lord that we might grow because it's God's will for us. But I want you to also notice that if those other uh, references and ways of speaking are about sanctification in general, Paul here is directing sanctification down a particular avenue, isn't he? Now, he's already told them you need to walk in the ways that we taught you to walk. 
abound more and more in those things. And I think that is a broader context. But starting in verse 3 where he says, for this is the will of God, he is narrowing it down. Narrowing it down very importantly here. He says, the will of God is your sanctification, as we just said. But then he says that you should abstain from sexual immorality. Now, my friends, there is a large context here, isn't there? To the Greco-Roman world and sexual immorality that abounded. If you want to talk about the the church in Thessalonica abounding more and more in faith and and honor and obedience before God, the Greco-Roman world abounded more and more in immorality. Now, they would uh, also claim some some other traits. Uh, They would claim to be a people who uh, were about certain ethics, but those things didn't cover sexual immorality. They had a very loose standard of morality when it came to sexuality. Now, you can read uh, about this, and you'll find that there were people who took it to an excess even in Roman culture, uh, that they would be lampooned or or pointed to and mocked for their overindulgence, but it took a lot. It took a lot to be considered overindulgent in the Greco-Roman world. We've spoken often about Corinth and how Corinth was a, a town noted for their sexual immorality. That even in the Greco-Roman world, they would say, uh, boy, he's like a Corinthian. But there were problems in every Greco-Roman town. There were problems throughout Macedonia. There were uh, problems with sexual immorality everywhere. They abounded everywhere, and clearly they abounded in Thessalonica. Now, we could get into much detail about what those issues were. But they generally revolved around a basic social permissiveness when it came to sexuality, Uh, that the bonds of marriage were not very sacred, that a wife's chief duty in the Greco-Roman world was to be really the household manager and to raise the children, that it was uh, highly permitted in those days that a man uh, could take on a mistress, and if he owned slaves, those slaves would often serve as concubines. These things are very common, and you can read about them in history and even in the commentaries on these passages. We'll speak about this. These were the ways that the Greco-Roman world lived in sexual immorality. Now, many people would say, well, these, uh, this attitude is the way we view things. It's how we, our outlook on things. There's nothing wrong with this. Paul says, be careful, because we are called to sexual purity. Recognize that when God is speaking about your sanctification, he is telling you to abstain from sexual immorality. Now, I didn't even get into all the sexuality that sir rounded a temple worship, pagan temple worship, with uh, cultic prostitutes and so on and so forth. There was sexual immorality everywhere. And there was this idea that apparently popped up from time to time that it wasn't that big a deal. That I'm going to proclaim Christ, I'm going to call myself a Christian, but I'm going to continue to dabble in these pursuits. I might go to the temple festival. I might engage with a prostitute there. I might uh, instead uh, just keep my mistress uh, on the side. I might uh, continue to uh, show an interest in my particular slave that I have a relationship with. And that's fine because we don't see anything wrong with that. Maybe Paul does. Maybe he quotes some Hebrew scriptures that would have a problem with it. But I'm going to proclaim Christ and continue in this immorality. My friends, Paul is going to give an urgent warning against such thinking. An urgent warning against such thinking. My friends, we need to recognize that Paul is saying, God's revealed will is that you would be sexually pure. Now, we could go to a number of texts that speak on this in the New Testament. 
and in the Old Testament that make it clear that God cares very much about this. That when you are a believer and and part of this idea of the temple of the Holy Spirit, how you use your body very much matters to God. He has given clear commandments on this and they are to be observed. I mentioned uh, last week that as Paul uh, was speaking about Uh, these commands in verses 1 and 2, that they are not presented as optional. They are not presented as optional. And when you get to the idea that this is the will of God, the will of God is not optional. There is nothing optional about God's will. If you are a believer, you are commanded to do God's will. In fact, we could say all people are commanded to do the will of God. In fact, if we want to get right down to it, Judgment falls on people because they do not observe and obey the will of God. That is the reason that just wrath shall fall upon all those outside of Christ. But if you are in Christ, you have been freed from being a slave to sin, and now you are a slave, a bondservant unto Christ. You must obey the will of God. Now, it's going to be made very clear here, but that is God's revealed will. Your sanctification, his desire to see you grow in faith, to grow, to be conformed in the image of Christ. And so, my friends, we need to recognize that God has revealed his will to us. I mentioned in our last sermon in in this uh, book that I'd recently heard Sinclair Ferguson talk about uh, people looking for the secret will of God. Well, if I could only find the secret will of God for my life, I could live it the way I need to. And he said, why won't these same people look to the revealed will of God as found in his word? Here, Paul is saying, God has clearly revealed his calling upon you to walk away, turn away from sexual immorality, to turn toward sexual purity. My friends, we need to recognize that there is a need to obey the word of God. And to see his revealed will that we are to be a sexually pure people. And that means we must turn away from sexual immorality. But if we've seen God's revealed will, we need to see that this is all based on or at least spoken to to the Thessalonians as that they need to have self-control. So our second point is your self-control. Now, none of this is possible outside of a, a work of the Holy Spirit. The regenerating work of the Holy Spirit is absolutely the basis for Uh, our new life in Christ. There's no question about that. But my friends, our sanctification is empowered by the Holy Spirit, but we are called to act. In Romans 8, in Colossians, in various places, we are told to get to killing sin, mortify sin in the flesh. In other words, this is only possible because of the Holy Spirit, but you are called to do it. With the empowerment of the Spirit, put to death sin in the flesh. Well, likewise, look at what we're told here. In verses 1 and 2, you've received these commandments, you've received this word, do it. Abound more and more. And now we're told that you should abstain from sexual immorality. That is a call for you to act, to abstain, to don't engage. This is a negative command. Don't do something. Do not engage in sexual immorality. But just as there is a negative command here, there is also a positive command, isn't there? Look at uh, verse 4. That each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. Now, my friends, there are a number of ways this text right here, this verse is looked at. In fact, there are four main ways 
uh, that people interpret this text, uh, I come down pretty strongly on one of them. Uh, some people say that this is a reference to a wife, that a vessel, and for instance, when Peter speaks of a vessel, he's speaking of a human being, and so this might be a wife, that you should not possess your wife and to refrain from sexual immorality. But as many commentators have pointed out, this really doesn't make sense. It doesn't flow in the larger uh, movement of what Paul is arguing here. It makes much more sense since he's talking about what you need to do that Paul is saying here, yes, when I speak of vessel, I do mean your body. That word is uh, skuos. It does mean body. He's saying, but he's referencing your body as a believer. And he's saying here that you need to possess it. Katamai. It, it means to have control over. So rather than having control over your wife, I think what Paul is saying here is have control over your own body. Discipline your body. Is this not a message we hear in 1 Corinthians and elsewhere? that just as the athletes are down at the track disciplining themselves and, and focused and doing what it takes to move forward in their life as an athlete, so as a believer you need to likewise do. Discipline yourself. Sub, put under subjection your lusts and passions. Crucify. Put to death sin in the flesh. Well, I think Paul is telling them here, if you want to learn how to abstain from sexual immorality, it takes some work. You must learn how to possess or how to get control over your body in sanctification and in honor. It's interesting. If you go back to Romans 1, Paul talks about dishonor in the way that the pagans use their bodies in dishonorable ways. Here Paul is drawing a distinction, isn't he? You are called to use your body in honorable ways, ways that serve the glory of God. God has permitted ways that are proper and appropriate. Do those things. Abstain from doing those things that are unclean and inappropriate and bring shame. My friends, after he says this, he says we don't want to do this in passion of lust. In passion of lust. Now, passion is the word uh, pathos, and you know what that word means, right? But when you look at the word lust here, Paul is saying don't let yourself be controlled by your passions. Don't let yourself yourselves be controlled by your body by what would drive you get in control of it learn how to possess your own vessel learn how to to exercise control and discipline over your body now my friends that's going to be really important later on because many people say well i just can't i just can't and the question paul's going to come back to later is well do you have the holy spirit are you empowered renewed by the Holy Spirit, and you're going to say you can't exercise control with the empowerment of the Spirit of God? My friend Paul says you won't. It's not that you can't. You won't exercise control. You refuse to, and that's going to bring a larger question to bear. But my friends, we must possess our own vessel. That is what Paul is saying. And we do not want to defraud our own brother. Now, he doesn't mean our physical brother, and I don't even think from what most of the commentators are saying that he means your Christian brother. He's speaking here in the larger sense of defrauding other people. You know, sexual immorality defrauds lots of people involved. Much of sexual immorality, even in our own world, is based on deception and fraud. People misstate their intentions all the time in order to engage in sexual immorality. And then once they've gotten what they wanted, they move on. They no longer have to defraud. They've gotten what they wanted. So it was in the ancient world. 
And there's a larger picture here that whenever you use someone for sexual gratification, you are defrauding them of their humanity. They're no longer a person made in the image of God. They are a means to satisfy what you desire. It's the abuse of another person, even if they're willingly involved. My friends, Paul is speaking here of a larger principle of not defrauding other people not putting yourself above them and using them to meet your needs. And even in the larger question of of, uh, marital infidelity, there is a, a point Paul is making. You are defrauding someone else, even if someone's spouse enters in with you in immoral behavior. Paul says you're defrauding her husband or his wife, whatever the case may be. You're defrauding another person and taking what is rightfully theirs. You know, a... A husband or a a wife that is engaging in immoral behavior outside the bonds of marriage is not their own to make that decision. They have committed themselves before God to their spouse. It is not their right to give themselves to another. And Paul says, even if they're willingly engaged in it, you in this act are defrauding their spouse of their rights before God. And you'll be held accountable. My friends, Paul says, I want you to think about this because God called you to something great. God didn't save you to live in the gutters of life. He didn't save you to live in the valley of immorality. He saved you that you might be conformed to the very image of Christ. That is His will and your duty to obey, empowered by the Holy Spirit of God. Paul makes this point in verse 7 where he says, God did not call us to uncleanness. He did not call us to uncleanness. Now that word is akatharsia. And the idea here is uncleanness, filth. He didn't call us to live in filth. He didn't call us to be a filthy or immoral people. He called us and saved us and delivered us that we might be a holy people, a righteous people, a sanctified people. He called us that we might be holy as he is holy he tells us that in leviticus yes leviticus 11 in the old testament but also in the new testament in peter's first epistle that we are called to be holy as our god is holy now that is a process for us but we are called to be in that process sanctified by the spirit moving forward not remaining in filth not acting as a dog who returns to its own vomit that's the picture isn't it but a people who recognize what we have been saved out of. I just think so often about uh, illustrations from Pilgrim's Progress. How attractive did the city of destruction look to Pilgrim once he was on his journey? He didn't want to turn back. My friends, we shouldn't turn back either. Not toward filth. Not toward all this uh, evil and immorality we are called to leave that and my friends notice if you will that as that verse is read he says god did not call you to uncleanness he did not call us to that he did uh, he called us instead to holiness and he says in this way and i want you to think about this just for a moment he says that he has called us out of the passions of lust don't live in the passions of lust as the gentiles do And then notice what he says about them. For they do not know God. Those who do not know God. Isn't it interesting? Again, in Romans chapter 1, one of the great passages of the Bible on this very subject. 
as Paul is explaining uh, the Gentile world, the pagan world outside of Christ, he goes on to say, first of all, they know of the glory of God. For no one can deny the existence of God. We all know that he exists. But what does he say? We suppress the truth in unrighteousness. It says, professing to be wise, they became as fools, and they changed the glory of the incorruptible God into the image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Now, the idea here is where man goes in his filth, in his fallen mind, he goes to create an idol uh, that he is in control of, that he gets to set the standards, that he gets to set the rules instead of obeying what God has commanded. And notice what it says, therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness the same idea we just read they are given up to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves sounds like paul's quoting from the same chapter doesn't it paul is giving the same idea here don't dishonor your bodies don't follow the lust of your heart don't be given up to uncleanness because this is what is going on in the pagan world and notice in verse 28 of romans chapter 1 he says and even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. My friends, they tried to reject the knowledge of God, and God gave them over to it. God gave them over to it in his judgment. So my friends, Paul is saying, exercise self-control. Do not be like the pagan world. You were not called to this filth. You are called to honor and glory and obedience in Christ Jesus. You have been set free that you might serve the true king, King Jesus. My friends, you are his subject. That is an honorable position. To be the subject of the most glorious king, what more honorable thing could there be? Live like it's honorable. Do not subject yourself to filth. You are called out of the filth, not to abide in it. We could go back to the prodigal son when he came to himself and had that moment of repentance and realized he needed to get out of the mire and filth of the pigsty and return home to his father's house. If we've seen God's revealed will that we should be sanctified and abstain from sexual immorality, and we've seen that we are called to be a self-controlled people, exercising control, if you will, over our bodies, that we might not give ourselves over to the passion of lust, Then we want to see our third point and final point this morning, Paul's urgent warning. My friends, Paul says, I have warned you in this. Now, where does he say that? Well, look, first of all, at verse 2 again from our last sermon. For you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus. We gave you commandments. We gave you marching orders. We told you what God desires. And then again, as you walk forward in today's text you see that it is laid out there that these are the commands of God it is his revealed will you are called to do this and then of course as he comes down into these last few verses he tells that this is the command of God and it carries God's judgment it carries God's judgment we have warned you and ordered you in the past that this is the case we've told you this We've told you that no one should defraud his brother. We've told you that God did not call us to uncleanness. In fact, in verse 6 he says, we also forewarned you and testified. It's amazing to me, Paul is so concerned that they haven't learned enough, and yet everything he says he goes, as I told you when I was there. 
In other words, Paul did tell them many things. He warned them many things. And he warned them this, that God is serious about this matter, that it is not a game. He does not play around over things like this. Paul says God is an avenger. Now, my friends, you better listen to that. God will avenge those who are wronged, and he will avenge against those who are doing the wrong. God does not play when it comes to sexual immorality. You might think, who does it harm? If it's two willing adults, it is a violation of the will of God. It is sin. You hear this much today. What does it matter if two adults willingly engage in sexual activity outside of marriage? Well, it's a violation of the word and will of God. It seems that God cares about it. And Paul is telling you here, no matter what you think about it, God is an avenger. He is one who will avenge against wrongdoers. And my friends, you better listen to that carefully because uh, that is a frightening thing to behold and to think about. Paul says, we warned you about it, and it's still true. God will punish wrongdoers. He will punish all those who do not obey this command, who find themselves outside the will of God. Now, we know God judges all those outside of Christ. We know that he will bring judgment upon all those who are not in his mercy through Christ's righteousness. But there's something important that Paul says here that we need to hear that I think goes very much against the thinking of our age today, just as it did against, uh, in Paul's day. He says, therefore... So actually, let me go back here just for a moment. As he says that God will avenge, he goes back through that again and says that God did not call us to uncleanness but to holiness. Therefore, in other words, based on what he's just said, therefore, he who rejects this does not reject the word of man, does not reject man, does not uh, find it irrelevant or unnecessary, however you want to interpret uh, that word or in, the, in the Greek. He says he's not rejecting Paul's orders or Paul's ideas, or Paul's will, but he's rejecting God. Unnecessary to follow, unnecessary to listen to. Not that important. If you reject what is said here, you reject God. That's what Paul says. You reject his commands, you reject his orders, his will, you reject him. And it's he who has given us the Holy Spirit. Paul's giving us multiple warnings here. I hope that we're hearing them. Do not engage in such behavior because God will bring vengeance against those who do. Do not engage in such, such behavior because doing so is rejecting the will and even the person of God. Do not engage in such behavior because you will have no excuse. Because when you try to argue that I couldn't help it or there was no way to battle it, the question is, did you not have the Holy Spirit as we said earlier? My friends, that brings us to a very serious question. That brings us to a very serious question. If you just disregard the commands and will of God or make some excuse that you just can't do it, then it leaves open this question, are you a Christian at all? Are you a Christian at all? I don't always have a commentary up here with me, but I wanted to bring this one up today because G.K. Beale, in his commentary on First Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians put it very sharply. On this very text, here's what he wrote. The judgment Paul considers here is not some mere disciplining procedure of genuine believers. Rather, 
those who do not break off from their former pagan ways of living should not be considered truly Christian and should certainly not be given assurance that their faith is genuine. Such people who confess to be Christians but live like Gentiles will be judged like unbelieving Gentiles. Paul underscores his warning by reminding them that he has already cautioned them repeatedly about this kind of sin and its consequences. My friends, we need to recognize that this is really an important thing to hear. Just the next page after this, he says that if you cannot live by the commands of God, it is an evidence that you do not have the Holy Spirit. In other words, the fact that you would say, I just cannot do this, but in reality you're just disregarding the commands of God altogether, it is an evidence, by the way, that you are not a Christian. That's what G.K. Bill is saying. Now, G.K. Bill is one of the leading New Testament scholars in the world. He's saying something that I believe many modern Christians would find shocking to hear. That repeatedly engaging in sexual immorality, particularly what Paul is speaking of here, and to get into the direct Greek language, it is sexual intercourse outside the bonds of what God has set up. To repeatedly engage in this kind of behavior, Paul says, puts you in a position that it would greatly question whether or not you can even call yourself a Christian. Whether or not you have been renewed by the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. He says, certainly you should have no confidence of that. Certainly you should have no confidence of that. My friends, that is an urgent and shocking warning. And I want to close by saying it is an urgent and shocking warning to our own age. Now, I'm not so sure uh, that it is all that different today. We have people all over the place that call themselves Christians in churches all over this country who live in sexual immorality outside of what the Bible allows. And we know this. We know this, and oftentimes you'll hear people try to say, well, you know, they are a Christian. They are a believer. I remember that they went forward and they professed their faith. But Paul is putting doubt on such a confession. Paul is saying, how can a person regenerated by the Holy Spirit disregard the expressed will of God to such a degree that they would live in violation constantly of the will of God as if God's will didn't matter? Paul asks, can a Christian behave that way? Now, maybe there is a way that a Christian can, and that would be in ignorance. They don't realize or haven't thought about what Paul says in a verse just like this that we are called to live by the will of God, to obey the will of God, to even love and grow to love the will of God, to recognize that our truest calling is to be in the will of God, that we can only truly be what we were made to be when we recognize that we need to be in the will of God, that it's only in the will of God that we can glorify God and enjoy Him forever. My friends, We live in an age, I think, that doesn't think about this or hasn't thought about it. And that might be our fault as preachers, that we have not preached the word clearly. We have not preached the full counsel of God. We have not preached that such living is incompatible with Christianity. It's not just problematic. Paul is saying it is incompatible with a walk in Christ, regular and careless sexual immorality. My friends, we need to recognize that that is a problem a grave problem in the confession of many Christians today. You know, it's not just in terms of what Paul is speaking of here. I mean, 
Paul's uh, definition of sexual immorality would include beyond just extramarital affairs and these sorts of things that are seem to be normal and, in fact, uh, almost glorified in today's entertainment. But how about the fact that we live in an age where many churches are calling things that God clearly calls sinful acceptable? How many times do you go or hear about churches that are openly accepting things that God condemns? Is that any different? Is that not exactly what Paul is speaking of here? To call good what God doesn't call good? To call clean what God has called unclean? My friends, God says, through his apostle Paul, through the Holy Spirit's inspiration of Paul, that such people face judgment. We need to recognize we're living in an age that needs to hear this very message. Paul says this because he cares about the Thessalonian believers. I don't know, uh, I cannot tell you if Paul knew that there were some in Thessalonica that were in danger of trying to continue a walk with Christ and living in sexual immorality, or if Paul's just giving a general warning that he would give to all believers that such things are incompatible with one another. What does sexual immorality have with a walk in Christ, have to do with a walk in Christ, or have to do with a walk empowered by the Holy Spirit? Paul says they are incompatible. Well, my friends, we must stand on truth. It is not always a comfortable stand especially in an age that has gone so far after sexual immorality and calling it normalized or calling it fine. But we must have the courage and the faith to stand on the truth that God has given us. That we cannot be a people who accept sexual immorality. That we cannot be a people who walk in sexual immorality or a people who live in it. We must be a people who recognize that we are called out of uncleanness and into holiness by the grace of Almighty God. My friends, if you are a Christian, if you have been saved by God's amazing grace, if you have been regenerated in your justification by the power of the Spirit, and you've had the love of God poured out into your heart by the Holy Spirit who's been given to us, this is not optional. Paul is making that clear. If you are a Christian, you must turn from sexual immorality, and you must start living for the glory of God. And that means living honorably and living righteously for the honor and glory of Jesus Christ. My friends, this is a message the world needs today just as much as it needed it 2,000 years ago in the Greco-Roman world. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would help us to hear your word, that you would help us, Father, to understand the call that you have placed on all those who are in Christ that there is no place for a part-time believer. There is no place for a part-way believer. You have called us that we might be regenerated by the Holy Spirit, that we might walk in a new path as new creatures in Christ Jesus. That is the message over and over of the Scriptures, that we are called to abstain from sexual immorality, and we are called to live in an honorable way that brings glory to you. Father, that is not the message of our culture, just as it was not the message of the culture in which Paul lived. But Father, I pray that you would convince us in our hearts of this truth, that you would give us the courage and wisdom to stand on this truth, 
that you would help us to be a people who proclaim that we must turn from sexual immorality. But Father, first and foremost, that we would be a people who actually do turn from sexual immorality. And for that to happen, Father, we need the help of the Holy Spirit. We need his empowerment. We know outside of his empowerment, we have no chance. But Father, if we are in Christ, we have that empowerment. So help us to stop making excuses. And help us, Father, to live for your glory. That Christ's name might be lifted high. And that we might bring honor to the name of Christ. It's in his name we pray and for his glory. Amen.